Hello and welcome to this podcast series on culture and inequality. My name is Giselin de Kuipers and I'm a professor of sociology at KU Leuven University in Belgium. This is the first episode of a teaching podcast that examines how culture, tastes, lifestyles, values, standards, shape and reproduce social inequalities in contemporary societies. First, we would like to introduce ourselves. I am a sociologist working in Leuven in Belgium. Both in my research and my teaching, I'm concerned with frivolous things and their serious consequences. I have, for instance, looked how seemingly light things like our sense of humor, our fashion sense, or our favorite mode of transportation shape our identities, lead us to exclude others, thus consolidating social hierarchies both within and across countries. Today, I'm talking with Luc Brans. Luc, can you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, I am Luc Brans. I am a PhD candidate at KU Leuven University in Belgium in cultural sociology, looking at the way politics creeps into cultural production. But for this purpose of the episode, for the purpose of this episode, I am the model student that will help you understand the readings from a student point of view. So I will ask all the dumb questions, or not dumb questions, but the student questions. <laughs> so, and in this uh, role, I am the professor here explaining and giving all the answers. So this is actually a remake of the original opening episode of this podcast series. So the original version was made rather hastily in 2020 in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And we are now a bit embarrassed about it, hence the remake. In this episode, we're introducing the general theme, culture and inequality. How does culture shape and reproduce social inequalities? And how we, can we understand this better if we look at this through the lens of sociology. In this episode, we look at four classic texts and documentaries by Pierre Bourdieu, Stuart Hall, Michel Hamon, and an article by myself that tries to integrate insights from these traditions. So why and how does culture shape and reproduce inequality? It's maybe easiest when we try to understand this to start from personal experience. So we start with a question for Luke as I usually start with questions for students. So do you have a personal experience of feeling culturally off, excluded, disadvantaged because of your cultural taste or practices and the reverse? Do you remember moments when you look down upon other people because of their cultural taste or their cultural practices? So is this just personal taste or what sort of social logic is there behind this? Look. Well, this is a very good question. And before I answer, I would like to have a disclaimer. This is, this is my answer is necessarily colored by me being a cisgender, straight, white, middle-class man uh, growing up in the West. Um, but of course, then even as a middle-class uh, person, you do have sometimes feelings of being culturally off or excluded. So I grew up um, um, in Amsterdam and I went to a school that was, um, um, yeah, it's a little bit elitist, I would say. And uh, I noticed not a little bit, <laughs> not a little bit oh, quite, <laughs> quite elitist. But it's not a private school. I I, I want to emphasize it's a public school. Um, so uh, what happened there was every uh, I felt culturally excluded when it came to the holidays because in uh, the uh, winter holidays or the Christmas holidays, uh, all my classmates would go on to do uh, skiing and snowboarding in the Alps. But I never went because my family didn't have. The money nor found it very important. 
And in summer, all my well, we would go camping in the south of France. All my classmates would go to sailing schools and would go sailing. And they all went to these sailing courses. And they all knew all the like the, the special vocabulary about sailing, which is quite a lot in Dutch language, actually. And I didn't have a clue, so I couldn't talk with, with them about it. I couldn't couldn't join the discussions about this or so I felt excluded by um, not going there and my family didn't send me to sailing school because for them that was something you wouldn't do like it's 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 something for the other people it's posh it's something for the rich people not for people like us um so yes I do have a feeling of I, I do have experiences of, of feeling uh, excluded and the other question was regarding... The other question is the other side of this. So do you look down upon other people because of their cultural practices? Right. This, this is quite a difficult question because you do not want to come across as being a snob or annoying or looking down upon people or elitists. But sometimes I log into streaming services like Netflix and they have a top 10 of people of, of, of content that is being watched by people. And sometimes I think, especially number one to four, like... Why are people watching these TV series and these comedies or these films that are clearly not very good and are a bit, um, I think <laughs> in England they would say are quite naff. So they, um, to me, this is a way I sometimes catch myself looking down upon people, even though I know it's not good. And I sometimes also have this experience when it comes to food and, and drink, uh, especially when it comes to wine. So yes, I do have this kind of uh, um, experience as well so thank you Luke I realize this is uncomfortable but it is also also this discomfort I think is telling because it tells us something about how we feel about inequality so what we see here is actually a very middle class experience of inequality where in the Dutch context which is where we both are from inequality is very much expressed through taste and cultural practices so specific sorts of elites uh, distinguish themselves uh, find like-minded people because they share the same uh, cultural tastes. For instance, sailing, which is something that you have to learn. And once you're very skilled at it, it's something that you can share with others. But it's also a form of exclusion. It's a very, obviously, a very middle-class form of uh, inequality that we're talking about here. But then sociology, as Lucy, has a very middle-class bias. So many sociologists share this middle-class background. So this is a good place to start. And then from the perspective of looking down upon others, so this is something what the middle classes traditionally do. So a large part of being middle class, at least in European context, is priding yourself on your good tastes, on your cultivated experience. And we're a bit embarrassed about that because it's yeah. very unpleasant. And that's why you yeah. do it in the form of culture, because it would be sort of not nice to say that people are poor, but instead you could say, well, they watch the wrong kind of television. So it's very difficult for me to understand why people do this. Mm. So it's it can be painful to talk about this mm. and it's embarrassing, but it is also because we're embarrassed about uh, inequality and we're also embarrassed about the feelings that we have, mm. superiority, uh, which is uh, unpleasant, but it's very central in society. Uh, and we can understand this best not through the sort of big abstract things, but through the particularities. So this very specific details, and this is also what Bourdieu uh, writes in his article, one of the articles that we that we discuss in this podcast. And in typical Bourdieuian <laughs> way, he yeah. says this very complex. So he writes, 
The deepest logic of the social world can be grasped only if one plunges into the particularity of an empirical reality historically located and dated, but with the objective of constructing it as a, and then quotation marks, special case of what is possible. So the Dutch sailing, the Dutch keying, the, the thinking about wines, food, and Netflix series is a specific example of a much larger social logic and social mechanisms where we distinguish ourselves, where we draw boundaries between ourselves and others on the basis of their cultural practices yeah. and taste. And these are expressions of real social inequalities. Uh, and this is really what we see here. So we see that something cultural, like uh, what you do on vacation, or what music you like, or what sort of food you like, or the way you speak, for instance, of the accent you have, can be a resource that produces inequalities. And moreover, these inequalities are always culturally specific. So I think the sailing even doesn't make a lot of sense in the Belgian context, which is just a few hundred kilometers from the Netherlands, but it still works differently. But what this shows is that social inequalities are not just about economics or labor market positions or political influence or educational achievements, but they're also about cultural processes. From the cultural knowledges, knowledge that we need to be accepted in certain surroundings, to the cultural categories that we use to pigeonhole people, people with good taste, people with bad taste, posh people or naff people, people who watch a certain kind of TV or something else. These are the themes we tackle in this podcast series. How we judge, include, and exclude people on the basis of cultural practices and categories. And how social inequalities are embedded in cultural tastes and in cultural artifacts, so things. And consequently, how culture is entangled always with inequalities, not only of class, but also gender, age, ethnicity, race, region, nationality, and many other uh, cultural categories that shape our identities. So in this podcast, as always, before diving into the text, we're asking what surprised you most in the readings that we are discussing today? So Luke, what surprised you most? To me, what surprised me most was the, um, uh, the rather um, complex way of writing of some of these authors. So these, uh, so as you just described, this is about very tangible um, um, processes, or not very tangible processes, but this is about... Yeah, rather, this is about the real world, the social world, and things that happen in our everyday life. Yet some of these authors, and I do exclude yourself, yours true, <laughs> and, uh, and Michel Lemont, but mostly Bourdieu and Hall are very, um, have a difficult way of writing. And you really need to, um, as a student also, I felt like I needed to um, really switch gears to really get into the mood and to get into the groove of, of reading these texts which could be quite frustrating, to be honest. Um, but in the end, it's quite rewarding because there are throughout both uh, Le um, uh, Hall and Bourdieu, but also in the other text, there are, of course, like little gems of wisdom that together uh, make up this larger um, um, structure of wisdom, I would say. So I think this this is what surprised me most. Yeah. So that's also what surprised me most was also the how extremely abstract... Yeah. These articles are so the very abstract academic tone with very few examples, very long sentences. And it's not only uh, strange because they're about such really concrete things like tasting music or about in the case of Hall about television news. So things that is very uh, 
mundane and everyday, but it's also uh, surprising to me because I know that all of them were really very passionate about redressing inequality. So it's really also from a contemporary perspective. So these are texts from the 1970s and 80s. It's very strange to, to understand that um, if you want to make a difference and if you want to make a political difference, what you do is write very dense texts of 15 pages <laughs> yeah. to sort of get across things that you really care about that you want to change in the world. So I think that. And now we make podcasts. And now we make podcasts in the hope that it becomes a little <laughs> bit more uh, understandable. Yeah. Uh, so let's now go to the reading. Yeah, so in each of the podcast episodes, we discuss a number of academic texts about culture and inequality. In this episode, we look at some foundational texts from the 1980s and 1990s that have defined how social scientists look at culture and inequality today. So importantly, we've selected these texts because they're foundational for the field. As we'll see, they emerged around the same time, the 1970s to early 1990s. They're also grappling with the same issue, culture inequality and the issue of cultural domination. And what we also see, they're all quite theoretical uh, and they may be rather hard to read. So the texts we discuss today are uh, The Forms of Capital, first published in English in 1986 in um, which French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu explains the relation between the cultural, social, and economic capital. We also read Social Space and Symbolic Space by the same author, by Pierre Bourdieu, but then published in 1994. We will also uh, discuss the documentary uh, Sociology as a Martial Art, um, which is about Pierre Bourdieu himself and follows him. We'll discuss that in just a moment. Yeah. Then secondly, we talk about the work of British sociologist and cultural scholar Stuart Hall, so we're reading his classical text, Encoding, Decoding, published in 1980, along with a video on media representation that features Stuart Hall uh, explaining his thinking. Uh, then we read the closing chapter of Michel Lamont's Money, Morals and Manners from 1992, and a video, very recent video of Lamont doing sociology. Finally, there's an article by myself from 2006, which I wouldn't claim is a classic in the same way, but it's I, there, I try to use and integrate these approaches. And the article was introduced mainly because these foundational texts are, as we said, quite abstract. Uh, and the interview material that I show in this article, although based on something that's outlandish and also really outdated linear TV from the Netherlands, might still bring it to life a little bit. So let's return to the central question of this podcast and of this episode. Um, why and how does culture shape and reproduce inequality? Each of these texts we discussed today addresses this question. And each of these, actually, each of these authors have devoted their careers and much of their lives to answering this particular question. And the answer they have given has inspired many, many researchers, including us, to continue that work in the same vein. For each author, <laughs> we ask, how do they answer this question? Um, and how is this useful to us today? To answer this question, we ask a series of questions <laughs> that are always useful in tackling a complicated text. First, we ask, who is this person and where are they coming from? Second, what are they trying to understand or explain? And three, what sort of research or empirical evidence are they using? Four, what concepts or theories do they use or develop? And finally, why and how is this useful? What does it help us see or understand better? How is this useful to understand the world today? So these are questions that are very useful when you're reading an, a difficult, complicated 
sociological text in general. So these are really questions to write down and maybe take with you for any kind of reading that is more difficult. So let's start with Pierre Bourdieu. So who this person is and where he's coming from. So Bourdieu is a French sociologist. He was born in 1930 and uh, died in 2002, which is already 20 years ago. Uh, he is arguably one of the most influential sociologists of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, and he's become known for building a, a complete a sociological framework and theory that can be used in many different places, but very specifically he's known for his work on uh, the reproduction of inequality in uh, mostly European societies, specifically France, and the way that all sorts of cultural processes are instrumental in reproducing this inequality. Uh, so he started, for instance, by asking the question, how is it, how is it possible that children from working class uh, backgrounds do so much worse in school than children for middle-class backgrounds. And his answer actually became the formulation of the concept that is now very widely used, which is cultural capital. So what happens when kids um, from working-class backgrounds enroll in the school system, in many aspects they are not at home in the same way as kids from middle-class backgrounds are at home. They speak in ways that are coded as wrong. For instance, they have an accent, their language is not very abstract, they will behave differently, there will be ways in the way they carry their body, which doesn't help them, uh, they will not have the taste. So in many, all of these things, and it doesn't have to do with something as abstract as their intelligent or their capacity, but instead with the things that they learned in their family environment, which didn't give them the right skills, cultural knowledge, cultural capacities, which Bourdieu cultural capital to do well in the school system. Uh, so this is one, so he explains this specifically in his book Distinction, which is very influential and which many people refer to, but we can't possibly discuss in one podcast, mm -hmm. I think, because it's very big and very dense. But he shows that all sorts of cultural tastes, from liking opera to being able to read complicated books, but also how you look at photographs, for instance, that all of this are expressions of an underlying disposition, uh, an aesthetic disposition, a way of appreciating things culturally that reflects a skill that also will make it easier for you to function in specific surroundings, for instance, because you know how to talk about sailing or you like the right Netflix yes. uh, series and not others. Uh, and, but these same skills also will help you move ahead in the educational system and feel at home in specific social circles. So Bourdieu himself, importantly, didn't come from uh, a middle-class background. So he is from a region in the periphery of France and also from a, a family where it wasn't very normal to go to education. He ended up at the biggest academies of uh, France uh, so it's also there is a certain sort of autobiographical element in this whole theory. And you can see this also in his documentary, which was made at the end of his life, where you can see Bourdieu not only analyzing social inequality, but actually also engaging with social inequality. Mm -hmm. So the documentary is called Sociology as a Martial Art. So the documentary, what, uh, what I found so... Um fascinating and maybe even inspiring is how he 
um, uh, he's really in the real world doing sociology. So it's not, uh, of course, there's scenes where he's sitting behind his desk and then rumbling through papers and a little bit rumbling, rambling through himself about these papers. But you, you mostly see him out and about. So in a radio studio, uh, in a uh, in a in a in a cultural community center uh, in the banlieue of Paris um, at a demonstration or manifestation. So for this is what really struck me is for him sociology is also about um, or being a good sociologist is also about um, really being. Uh, um, yeah, being engaged in the real world, not just sitting in an ivory tower and writing very complicated texts, which he also did. But uh, we're joined by our third guest right now, the the cat, the cat. Uh, <laughs> that wants some attention, uh, that doesn't agree with the Bourdieu. I think he's not very Bourdieuian. But so this is the this is this is what I thought about the documentary. Yeah, yeah cats are not Bourdieuian. So I would say they're probably more Nietzscheans. <laughs> 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 No, so so Bourdieu indeed. So it it shows him in a I would say in a fairly sympathetic light, but also really really dedicated. I think very strongly motivated to do something about. Uh, and I remember when the movie came out, which was a long time ago. I remember that that it was actually screening in all the big cinemas. So can you imagine? So it was really? like a, a in blockbuster Holland, in Holland too. Also in the Netherlands, I saw it in a movie theater. Wow. Uh, so in Paris, so just imagine. <laughs> the sort of fame that you can achieve as a sociologist could in could. the previous century. Okay, so a question for you, Luke. Um, so on the basis of these texts, what do you think Bourdieu is trying to understand or explain? So remember the texts are one about the forms of capital and the other about fields in the symbolic space. So I think it's uh, what he tries to understand here is how social inequality um, is reproduced and 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 um, reified also uh, in other ways than just economic inequality. So really, uh, inequality is not just about economic inequality. And this is why he, I think, opens up the concept of capital, which was usually reserved, of course, uh, as this very Marxist uh, undertone, and which is re- usually reserved for economic analyses to see how cultural processes uh, also shape inequality and how cultural inequality matters too. It's about yes, work. in a nutshell, that's what he's trying to explain. So and the one text on the forms of capital actually shows how three forms of capital, how they can be converted to each other. Yeah. So for, for making, um, for, for converting, for changing your cultural capital or your social capital, which is the people you know, for changing it into economic inequality, so real capital, you need to have tricks. So, for instance, cultural corporate capital can be converted into diplomas, and diplomas then can be converted into wages and social capital in the same way. So the people you know can be converted into access to specific social circles, which again... So there is still the belief that underlying there is an economic reality, which is yeah. the real There's still, right. yeah, yeah. The politi- yeah. So there's always still struggle and domination going on. Yeah. Um, um, and, and this is also related to the field of economic relations. And- yeah, so if you look at deep down with Bourdieu, you see that the economic logic is probably still sort of the defining Thing. Yeah. So the possession of things in the end is so it's a real struggle, but really the elites, uh, well, the game is rigged. Yeah, and I think yeah. this is also, when you talk about the conversion of capital, something to bear in mind. I mean, 
you can convert certain types of capital to others, but some of the capitals are embodied, so it's rather difficult to attain if you hadn't done so when you were young and being socialized in school, right? Mm-hmm. So the conversion of capital is not endless, right? You can run into certain walls in the end. Yeah, yeah, say. and that's why and that's why the system is rigged. So yeah, what you exactly. what you what you yeah. learn as a child is something that is will stay with you forever. Yeah, in a painful way. So that's what he shows. Which is really. Uh, an antithesis of, of sort of more meritocratic neoliberal modes of, of thinking in which it is all about working hard and deservingness uh, in the end. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, there is an episode of the podcast that comes after this, but that will talk about this, uh, how meritocracy is also like a cultural narrative rather than a so, so would you characterize him as a Marxist? So I think for all of the, for also for him and for Stuart Hall, you would see it's sort of so it's post-Marxist. I mm. mean, there is a clear influence of Marx on the focus of of uh, on social, the reproduction of social inequalities. Inequalities are rooted as rooted as uh, in in economic or structural uh, relations in a society, uh, and also. In the, the basis of struggle and attempts yeah. at domination as the, the sort of the central driver of social processes. And this is also what we see with Hall. And I think it's also, it's really typical of the period of the 1970s, which actually shows because it was like today, I would say a, a moment of strong, uh, yeah, social struggle, mm-hmm. uh, where the social sciences came to the fore as as an ideological, but also force, but also as a force to try and understand this. Yeah. And Marx really became in vogue as actually you see today again that sort of Marxist inspired understandings of society as struggle mm-hmm. are stronger. And what both Hall and Bourdieu have in common is the is the focus on culture as a central force in reproducing this inequality. inequality yeah. So there is this notion that culture creates. Yeah, like the superstructure creates ways of thinking, ways of seeing the world, and these ways of seeing the world actually reflect in the the, the interests and the worldview of uh, the, the elites, the mm. people that have most power, and it's through cultural force that they actually manage to dominate society. Uh, but yes, basically, this is this is so there is a deep underlying uh, layer of of Marxism in in much of the thinking about. Right, uh, cultural inequality right. to this day. So the question then is, what sort of evidence does Bourdieu give? Is this the third question that you also, I think, try to should uh, yeah should yeah. try to answer? So yeah. so he gives um, so in both texts he gives some evidence, but in one text a little bit more structural evidence than in others. Uh, but so Bourdieu is always working with a lot of empirical material in his work, and especially in the text on fields, you really see that he. Em- Employs or he, he works with a lot of uh, data, with a lot of data that he has on uh, uh, on on the tastes and uh, of the cultural tastes of people in France. So even though he, he underlines that this is not the same in every context, at least like not everyone likes the same things in every context. So in Japan, it might be different than in France. He still demonstrates in this field uh, piece. Um, how certain people like certain wine and are therefore different than others and vote certain ways uh, and are therefore different than others or like certain newspapers or like certain cultural outings that are different than others. So this is the kind of evidence that he works with. So do you go to the theater? Do you go to the cinema? And what kind of movies do you like? Do you like Westerns? Do you like other kinds of movies? What kind of music do you like? This is the kind of evidence that he works with. So it's always really 
based on this empirical reality, um, which is very much in line with his documentary, uh, what we saw him do there. Yeah. Yeah, so indeed, so it's survey-based and also interviews, yep. but he uses this to make a sort of map of, of people's taste, which is also the image that you see, the very famous image where he sort of shows really a map of tastes which can be mapped onto oppositions between cultural and economic capital and a lot of capital and less. And so in my experience, it's really intuitive in the sense that you see, you know, that, that tastes cluster. So people who like a certain yeah. thing also like other things. So people who like a certain kind of Netflix shows will also like certain sports, will also like certain foods. Uh, so this cluster and this cluster means that it's sort of, it really identifies a specific group and you can easily tell it and this reproduces inequality because this group will sort of recognize themselves and judge others on the basis of this taste. And you can really see it by just, you know, collecting survey data on a very extremely concrete things. Yeah. And then he uses it actually so the, the theoretical concepts spring from this. So what are the theories and concepts that you see in the... Yeah, so a very important concept, of course, is capital and field, but we already discussed those. I uh, um, I think habitus is another thing that ties it all together. So habitus is quite difficult to understand at first because he has this sentence that is very... There's a lot of words, there's a lot of words that are repeated in our structuring structures. That are <laughs> but what it is about, it's sort of more or less the internalization of field structures in a way, but it's not like set in stone within yourself. I mean, this is uh, more fluid, uh, but habitus is like how the field structures in which you were born and which you grew up are ingrained in yourself and also become part of your almost embodied uh, self and how you see the world and how you operate and move through fields and, and the wider world. Um, capital, there's various forms of capital. Cultural capital um, has different forms as well, but it's very much about uh, both your taste, but also your your education. Uh, social capital about the people you know. Um, and we have, of course, symbolic capital, which is a little bit difficult to understand. So, And economic capital. So economic capital is more about financial resources, which is quite straightforward. But symbolic capital is a little bit more difficult. Uh, and I always struggle with the difference between symbolic capital and cultural capital. So I don't know, Gislinda, maybe yeah. you so, can explain. So, so one of the one of the quite infuriating things about Bourdieu is that he uses terms a lot and then don't, doesn't really uh, define them. Uh, and he appears to use them rather loosely. Uh, so this is really the case specifically with symbolic capital, which he uses a lot of times uh, to denote a number of different things from people in Algeria and how they have authority to the way that uh, Parisian intellectuals operate. So symbolic capital, actually, I think if you translate it, is something like status or authority. So symbolic capital is the, the power that people have because of their position in a specific field and because of their sort of embodied capital to impose their will on others and make people believe that their view of the world is legitimate. Uh, so very often it has a cultural component, but you could also imagine that sometimes it's also because of a position that's not cultural. So it's really authority. So it's symbolic capital is what 
I have in making this podcast and getting people to listen to it because I have the symbolic capital to tell you that this is important. Um, it's, but it's also what someone in sports has if they have the capacity to, you know, to say that this is an important game or this is not. So in any field, you can accumulate symbolic capital if you have authority and status in this field. Yeah, so maybe also another good example would be in fashion is that some people with a lot of knowledge of fashion at working at certain magazines have the uh, symbolic uh, capital to say what is in or what is out. Yeah, yeah. and then it helps because other people believe in yeah. this status. So it's only all this status. What's typical of status is that it's a form of power that only exists because other believe, people believe it's there. What is uh, very much ingrained, and we already touched upon this in Bourdieu, is this struggle on, or is this focus on struggle and domination through culture. Yeah. Is there an escape hatch? Is there a way out in Bourdieu? Well, not so much. It's really difficult. So that's why that's why it's interesting. That's why I like to combine it with a whole. So for Bourdieu, I mean, there is a strong uh, implication that society will always reproduce itself and inequality will always reproduce, it, reproduce itself. Uh, there are some possibilities. For instance, you could imagine, you know, big societal shifts where all of a sudden another group as a group becomes dominant and then takes over. So the outcome of struggle sometimes can be that, you know, that another uh, group reproduces an elite yeah. uh, to define, so to set the power. So this is how struggles happen. Uh, but I think the constant in Bourdieu is that there is always a struggle for domination. And that's actually what's, what's, uh, keeps society moving. So I think it's interesting that, uh, that's, um, that's first of all that's also why what defined his move to politics so later on he went mm. really more and more from uh and analyzing and writing thick books to actual more sorts of open activism which is right. what you see in the documentary uh but then still so he tries to, there he tries to do something about it in the sense of intervening making people aware of how this process but also you know joining using his own symbolic capital to join, join specific social movements yep. uh for instance against uh, the rise of sort of neoliberal forms of government that produced new forms of inequalities in the 1990s so he was, so that's also explains his uh political turn but i think it's interesting to contrast it with Stuart Hall, yeah. who actually uses similar insights on how culture is very central to the reproduction of inequalities in society, and also with the same idea of looking at forms of domination through culture. Uh, but from early on, the, the school that Hall was involved with, the sort of Birmingham School of Cultural Studies, so a UK school, was very strongly involved also with possibilities for resistance. So what sort of openings there are, what sort of possibilities there are within such a cultural system to resist, not only through political organization, but actually also through culture. And through cultural readings of certain yeah. certain things. So who is this? Stuart Hall, who is he? Where is he coming from? So Stuart Hall is, so as I said, he's a British UK scholar. Uh, he was born in 1932, so almost a contemporary of Bourdieu. Uh, he uh, died in 2014. Uh, what's important about Stuart Hall is that he would like Bourdieu. He was also a public intellectual, so a very yeah. famous public figure who was on TV a lot. He was also like Bourdieu, very charismatic. Uh, he's also, interestingly, he is from Jamaica. 
So he has a, a, a migration background that also means that he was uh, very obviously racially different from the British mainstream. Yeah. Um, and he came from Jamaica and then went on to study in a very prestigious uh, UK university. So he also has the same trajectory of not fitting in, uh, although he was uh, probably from a more privileged background in the Jamaican context than, than Bourdieu. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he is so, and he was very much responsible for responsible for founding sort of for not staying within sociology, but instead founding a a school that is called Cultural Studies, uh, which is really more at the intersection of sociology and various sorts of humanities, really thinking about the the possibilities for culture to offer resistance and to create new forms of understanding the world, so not reproducing, but instead. Uh, opening up ways for resistance and for very critical reading. So it's much more a critical uh, theory of culture and inequality rather than more, you would say, analytical understanding as uh, Right, and he, this school is also sometimes referred to as the Birmingham School, yes. right? Yes. Yeah, because it started with the Birmingham Center in Birmingham uh, and then uh, from there. Now it's actually, especially in the yeah, very dominant, yeah, and also outward looking in the sense that he he only took a lot of uh, yeah he was a public intellectual and also worked for the Open University. Yeah, so I once I once saw saw Stuart Hall uh, uh, presenting at a conference, and I've never before after seen this in my life that he was giving a talk. Not only when he came in, everybody got up and applauded for him, but I saw people queuing up to get his autograph, <laughs> which is really yeah. which in sociology yeah. I've never seen. Before after, no one asked for your autograph. No. <laughs> so, so he was really, so he was really a star in a, in a very specific way, in a different way than. Yeah. Uh, on the basis of these texts and also the video, uh, what do you think Hall is trying to understand? Or I think what he's trying to understand and explain is that um, how um, cultural messages or communication. Um, carries certain connotations and codes that can also be decoded in certain ways. So different public audiences or different audiences can have different readings of the same cultural message or the same uh, communication. So when we think about uh, TV um, shows, but also the news, different people can have different forms of reading that that doesn't always correspond with the ways the people that made the tv wanted you to understand it so we're not automatons or robots watching and the news and then reproducing the dominant hegemonic meaning of that but we have some sort of agency in encountering that so he really tries to open up this way of or this model of communication yeah is what i got from this maybe so that's one half so the model is known (laughs) as encoding decoding yeah so the one so people things meanings are encoded into cultural text which also means that they can be decoded and that's not uh, a given or not automatic mm-hmm. so indeed there is agency or at least some space there uh, but it's also the other side he also explicitly says that that what is put into the text also is ideological so that's also and I think you have to understand from the sort of 1970s perspective the idea that you know news is not just the only or best possible way of explaining the world, but it's also, it's, he also suggested there's always ideology sort of inserted, encoded into the reading, so it's not neutral. Uh, but then, so it's an attempt to, to enforce or sort of feed 
this message, but then people have different positions. So everybody has social positions, which shapes whatever cultural thing they do, either produce or consume. Yeah. So it's a, so he's opening it up on both sides, both on the encoding part and the production part, and the as well as the decoding part, which is the consumption part, maybe more or less in a yeah. very uh, very daft way. So what's difficult? So so just something because it's a very very short and very dense text. It's extremely influential, like very very mm-hmm. very influential because of this very short understanding of you know meanings are put into there and these meanings are ideological and people. So it's actually it's it's. Uh, like Bourdieu, it's a very effective way of, you know, it's something you can really use. So it gives you a framework that you can apply to pretty much any cultural text and any cultural form, uh, which has been done. But it's very, very dense and difficult it's to read. Dense, so if yeah. you as a student struggled with this, uh, I can empathize with that because I struggled with this too in the past. So what sort of evidence does he present? So he doesn't really present concrete evidence in what we read, but he usually works with uh, television. Uh, uh, I mean, that's the basis on which he, he, he wrote this. So he mentions also in the text some uh, some some events that are maybe relayed through television and carry certain hegemonic, or were meant to, to encode certain hegemonic meanings into the text, but maybe decoded differently. So he talks about uh, what happened back then in Northern Ireland, the Troubles, but also the um, um, uh, coup, coup d'état in Chile and Algerian protests, I think. So he works with that kind of evidence. And but also in his other work, he he outside of this text, he he really also studied the production of TV. Um, actually, went to TV studios, talked to people in TV, and on the other side, also studied the reception um, of TV. Um, so it's always based on very empirical evidence. So even though it may seem very abstract and he doesn't draw in very concrete evidence in this particular piece, he usually worked with very uh, concrete empirical yeah. data. Yeah. So very much like Bourdieu. Yeah. Very much like Bourdieu, yeah. yeah. But if we compare, so again, we go through a series of questions that are always useful if you read an academic text. So after what sort of evidence? So what are the sort of theories and concepts that he draws on or produces? So um, it it comes from a sort of semiotic background. So sign is a very important thing, but also meaning and dominant code and encoding, decoding uh, uh, to uh, to envision how things are produced into text, meanings are produced into text and also decoded on the other side by, by those in reception. And then these readings, these different forms of readings are very important. So hegemonic reading, which is basically taking over the the way or like taking up the hegemonic meaning, the negotiators when it doesn't really work or the oppositional reading when people are actually running counter to this. And this is where ideology comes in as well. So ideology is a very important thing underlying this text uh, as he tries to see how sometimes uh, texts can carry uh, hegemonic ideological ways of thinking about the world, but also can run into the wall when people have an oppositional reading or even a negotiated reading yes. of this cultural text. Yeah. So, yeah. so indeed, so indeed, it's it's really about how people engage with culture, how they produce and engage with cultural text and how this is related to sort of underlying political system or political economy. Um, and for this, like Bourdieu, again, he combines a version of Marxism so a version of society as struggle about uh, resources 
uh, with a cultural theory. And mm. I think it's important to understand that this is actually a sort of strand that you see everywhere that what the 1970s brought was an integration of cultural theories, in this case, semiotics by Barthes, in, uh, in Bourdieu's case, more sort of Durkheimian theories with Marxism. And it was this conflation of these two things that actually to this day shapes the field. Um, so we have cultural theory, so you can analyze culture as you analyze a text. Mm-hmm. And then you have um, political economic theories that see society as struggle about resources. Yeah. So what is the difference with Bourdieu? The most important difference, I mean, there's many differences, but the, the main difference that we should take away from <laughs> So I think I think the really so practically speaking, the main implication is the focus on where you look for cultural processes. So Bourdieu looks for cultural processes really in the reproduction of of power. Mm-hmm. So where where is status? Where is capital? Uh, so it also leads you to look to the upper strata, to the middle classes, to the upper classes, and this is what we see throughout the course. So there is a strong bias to looking at the people that have power and try to defend their position yeah. using culture. Uh, and what the, the Birmingham school really did was actually look at the other way to look at the people that were more excluded and how they became marginalized and also how, for instance, their readings of TV news or popular culture also offered them opportunities for resistance and for expression. So it really looks at the other, in a sense, takes takes the side or takes the perspective of the people that are excluded rather than the actions of the people that are mostly trying to exclude others. Very, very, so Mm. very, very simply put. Uh, So I think it's interesting uh, also to think about why and how this is useful. Uh, So what does it help to see us better? So the perspective by whole. I think what it helps to see is two things, is how um, cultural texts can be very political and carry an ideological meaning. Um, and on the which isn't very new, but what it really brings is this different ways in the in way the different ways in which this happens. But also, uh, I think it's useful to understand why sometimes it doesn't work and how you can have different readings of the same texts uh, or different receptions um, in which the hegemonic ideology is not reproduced or doesn't doesn't catch on. Yeah, I think it's useful. Yeah, so it's it's interesting because it it tells you how how texts you know can lead to actually the same text can have different effects, right? And I think right. it's important. So it's mostly used in media studies, uh, and I think it's really helpful to maybe also give an example. So because the whole talks about linear TV, which is well as good as dead or at least mm. not very prominent today, but I think you can still see the same. Uh, processes in many, for instance, also in social media today, if you see that how messages and ideologies about social worth and about how to behave are encoded into media text and how they can be read in different ways. So one example that I like to use is, for instance, messages about beauty on social media. It's really clear that there is an ideology there. So what do you have to be to be a good person? What do you have to be happy? You, by the way, you have to be happy, which is also an ideology. So social media tell you tell you a lot of things about yep. what you should be and how Authentic. you should get there, which is which is an ideological message. So it's a yep. message that has that tells you uh, how to live your life, what is important. And so these are embedded, encoded into these messages, but there are different ways of reading them. So depending on your position, you can sort of move along. Uh, with these messages, uh, you can 
try to do something about it, but not others. So this is, for instance, how I, how I read body positivity. Mm. It doesn't exactly challenge the underlying idea, but it sort of adds new insights or gives some nuances. Uh, but you can also oppose to them, and that would be so. That would be a complete, like a negotiation, a complete uh, offering opposite understandings of what it means to look good, and if that's mm. not important at all. So there are always these three different positions that you can have vis a vis any sort of. Uh, which makes the which makes cultural messages much more layered, yes, and a much yeah. more nuanced view on yeah. culture and ideology. Yes, indeed. So yeah. this brings us to the third theorist, who um, is uh, uh, much younger than these two gentlemen, and also still alive, uh, Michel Amou. Um, so who this person is and where she is coming from, and here I let Luke answer. Michelle Lamont is a sociologist working in the U.S. Uh, at Harvard University, but she's originally from Canada, from Quebec. She is a student. She was a student of Bourdieu, um, and she uses very uh, often the same kind of ways of thinking. But she also runs um, really strongly opposes his constant view of, of of cultural processes as processes of domination and struggle. So she, in her work on boundary making, she really tries to show that it's not always about struggle or domination or distinction so much as it is also about um, recognizing other <laughs> your own worth and other people's worth without necessarily trying to dominate them. So if you look at these texts, so there's one text that uh, we discussed today in one video. So looking just as this text in this video, what do you think she's trying to understand or explain here? She's, She's trying to understand or explain how uh, people draw symbolic and social boundaries uh, or how actually underlying social boundaries are symbolic boundaries that people draw between themselves and others in society and what kind of criteria they use for this. So uh, based on the basis of moral criteria or cultural criteria, uh, people draw certain boundaries with other groups or with other people, yeah. which they deem as worthy or not. Yeah, I think so these kinds of, this is very important with Michel Lamont, is this, um, uh, are these concepts such as worthiness, recognition, recognizing others, value, valuing others, and valuation. These are the types of concepts that are important here. So what sort of evidence does she offer? She talks to cultural elites in what we read. She, so very much of, her, much of her work is based on empirical evidence um, by interviewing people. And in the work that we read for this episode, she talks to professional and cultural elites in France and um, and uh, uh, in the US, in particular, uh, both in very big metropolises uh, such as Paris and I think, I don't know, in the US actually. New yeah, New York. But also in, the, in, uh, in more rural areas or more provincial areas of both France and the US. Um, yeah. And she, she interviews them about, okay, how do you see society? Who do you see as people like you? Uh, how do you think about other people that are not like you? And why is this the case? Why do you look up upon them in such a way? And this really draws out um, that very often it's about certain moral or cultural repertoires uh, or even economic repertoires um, that people use to draw symbolic boundaries. So basically what she does is she talks to a lot of people this time middle class and she does ask them what do you think is a good person yeah uh, and the answer that people give there shows you a lot tells you a lot about how they see 
social worth. So how they judge others, how they evaluate others. And also, like what we did in the beginning, what people look down upon and who they look up to. Uh, and that's it's a very effective way of showing how people sort of distinguish themselves from others. But it's not always about trying to come up on top. So she takes a more open-ended approach. Yeah, so this is important, right? Because the symbolic boundaries that people draw do not always translate into social boundaries, right? So this is the, this is the nuance here. So even though people may, uh, may feel different than other people or not, don't, not find them a good person, this doesn't necessarily mean that in society at large, this is a social boundary. This doesn't always translate because that has to do with resources and power to draw those social boundaries and institutions that draw those boundaries. Yeah, and it's also about different sorts of things that people want to achieve. Yeah. So it's also people do not always and necessarily want to come out on top all the time. Yeah. Which is really what Bourdieu suggests, yeah. that people always want to be uh, at the sort of at the apex of any sort of political hierarchy or social hierarchy all the time. Yeah, just basically a, a correction, like not because, okay, Pierre, because you wanted to be at the top of the Paris <laughs> academic field, yeah. doesn't mean that everyone always wants that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So and instead, what she, in her recent work, but we'll talk more about this next uh, episode, uh, so she also stresses what people want, maybe it's not domination, but for instance, recognition. Yeah. So people just want to be seen and want to be accepted for what they are. And that might be much more important than uh, being uh, the boss. Uh, yeah. So, so she critiques Bourdieu, but also more widely any sort of Marxist understanding of their focus on culture as struggle, society as struggle, and personal motivation as domination. I think, I think an important thing with this text as well is also how she demonstrates how these processes might work differently in different national contexts. So um, certain boundaries or certain ways of judging people are more important in some contexts than in others. If I recall correctly, I think in France, the, the cultural boundary was like cultural boundary drawing was much more important than, than in the US, where in the US, uh, in certain parts, also the moral boundary drawing was very important. Yeah. So yeah, that's so. There are national differences that have to do with uh, with the way that nations have evolved, but also with the sort of institutional uh, relations. So the importance yeah. of different institutions. So Americans are more likely to judge each other for their moral worth, and French, especially the cultural elites, tend to look down upon morality a little bit. And yeah. Uh, yeah so it's more chic to be a moral yeah 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 dealing with moralities for the little people that go to church yeah yeah Yeah. so that's one of the differences and i think it's interesting that so this boundary drawings really are shaped by national yeah which might which might for the students be an interesting uh, kind of exercise to think about for themselves like how does this work in in wherever you come from or where you live yeah, so the difference is so what makes a good person, so also what gives you reason to to uh, dismiss someone as a bad person can be very differently. So the logic of how people sort of judge each other, evaluate each other, and how this translates into advantage and disadvantage, which is inequality, really is nationally specific. Uh, so the final question again is, so how is this useful to us today? It's, it's useful in the sense that it really demonstrates how... Um, it's not only always about cultural tastes or uh, culture in itself, but morality plays a big part too in drawing boundaries, as well as 
Um, it, it demonstrates that even though we're very much inclined to think of society as a rat race, this isn't always the case uh, for many people. Very many people are content with the ways they live their lives. Yeah, so the words she uses, it's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. So I think in, in sort of traditional Bourdieuian theories, uh, society is is seen as a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game means that, you know, when, when someone loses, then somebody else wins all the time. Mm. So you win, it means that I lose. So it's a game where, you know, everybody is always in the process of competing with everybody else. And this is an assumption in a model that doesn't have to be. Which is maybe a little bit more optimistic than... Uh... Yeah, well, at least it gives some some room for, uh, for, uh, yeah, for for, for a nicer viewpoint of, <laughs> yeah. of society. It's also what I think personally that's useful about her work is, which is maybe a little less optimistic, is that it actually shows that people are constantly in the process of judging each other. Mm. So, like, like the judgment of other people and the sort of boundary drawing that comes. So everybody is constantly sort of sizing up all the others. So what sort of person is? It's, yeah. Is he or she any good or bad? Is he like me or not like me? So this process of all the time uh, yeah, trying is... to position yourself vis-a-vis -vis other people. Yeah. Okay, so a bit shorter. Uh, my article, and maybe you can ask some questions here. Although, who is this person? Who is this person? It's a bit off. Um, but uh... um, so, what uh, were you trying to understand? It's it's a great we can we can interview the author like we do in the rest of the of the, of the podcast series as well. So, what are you trying to understand here? So this it's actually so it's part of my PhD thesis, which was about uh, social differences in sense of humor. So what do people think is funny? Who do they find has a good sense of humor or not? Uh, because this is like, as if you want to think about habitus, so it's a very good example of habitus in the sense that it's really what you think is humor. It's, it's very fast. It's very automatic. It happens straight away. Uh, so you laugh before you have had time to think about it or not. Uh, so And at the same time, I show in this article and other that it's really that it's very much shaped by your social position. Mm. So what you think is funny, on the, one, on the one hand, you feel it, you know, it's, it's very deeply embodied, like you feel it in your belly, quite literally. Uh, and at the same time, it's really socially shaped. Uh, and comedy is so one of the places where we go for humor or laughter today. So basically what I did in terms of method was was looking doing the same thing that Bourdieu did. So a combination of survey and interviews to sort of map people's tastes in the field of comedy and to interview them to see what sort of uh, things they mm. they find funny or not. And I must say, when I first did this study, I was a bit disappointed that it was so simple. That it, what came out was you know class and age. And I was thinking, so this was the 1990s, so late, almost 2000, so we were sort of you know, thinking maybe class is over, <laughs> and, you know, society, nice has, society has changed, it's more fragmented, so we all believe that society was postmodern, so all really different. And then what came out was really a very simple system that looked very, very much like Bourdieu. And of course, at first I was really disappointed because I didn't want to replicate Bourdieu, yeah, I wanted yeah. to find something new. Um, so what I was trying to understand was how our our social, our deepest tastes are socially structured. Uh, and what I found was that our deepest taste in the Netherlands 
And I think the same would go today. Actually, I don't, now I'm, I'm not as optimistic anymore. I think we'll find the same thing. It's very strongly structured by uh, class background and by age. Yeah. So one of the, um, so we basically had the question what you try to understand and what kind of evidence you use. So you talk to a lot of people, but there's one concept within this that I would like to ask you about, and it's cultural knowledge. Can you tell me a little bit? So why this is something central to the, to the piece? Yeah. So taste yeah. cultures and cultural knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, um, so that this is actually part of, of a movement that happened sort of uh, with later applications of Bourdieu. This is, will come up in other podcasts too. So what happened? So for Bourdieu, when he looked at um, a taste, he just asked people what they liked. Mm -hmm. And this gave a very clear image because in the 1960s, when he was doing his research, you know, rich people and educated people went to the opera and uh, less educated people liked football, for instance, mm -hmm. or soccer. Uh, and what happened afterwards is that actually people of different social classes or people of different social background tended to do the same things, uh, but interpret it very differently. Uh, so uh, liking specific forms of popular culture, like comedy, um, it's all on TV. It's yeah. not that it's really expensive. You don't have to know how to behave in an opera because it's just in your living room. Yeah. Uh, so something else is happening there um, to separate people, to segregate people in taste. And what segregates that is not the sort of barriers in terms of buying tickets or being intimidated by the opera, but instead what happens is that you need to have a certain cultural knowledge to understand specific forms of comedy. Yeah. So, and this is to this day, we have, you know, more intellectual forms of comedy like your Netflix shows. I mean, there would be sort of interesting intellectual Netflix shows where you have to be able to process and understand specific uh, complex forms of stylistic references deeper or meanings. deeper meanings. Yeah, so you have to so all sorts of references, cultural references that allow you to understand certain things in a pop culture version and other people that might not have this sort of background will just be puzzled. So it's not about the different in difference in access per se, but instead you need cultural knowledge to appreciate some things and not other things. And this is what you see in comedy because it's a it's low form, it's popular culture. So in the original Bourdieu, it's just all the way at the bottom along with yeah. all sorts of other parts. And it isn't because we know that that people who make it to the, this part in this podcast uh, will be able to deal with fairly complicated cultural content. And they are likely to have a very different taste in comedy than people who, you know, will have stopped listening to this mm. uh, after a few minutes. Yeah, exactly. So it's, again, sort of like a, a more layered approach to cultural consumption and cultural taste yeah. and, and the reception by him by, by, yeah. and how it's tied into class structures or not class structures. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and it's very classed. And what, so, and the reason that I, that I included here is that I, I discovered that I actually needed whole then yeah. to understand this. That because what happens is that people look at the same thing, uh, but they don't see the same thing. Yeah. And this doesn't really follow from the Bourdieuian logic, which basically assumes that people would, you know, like opera or not, yeah. or like comedy or not. Yeah. And what I found here is that people can look at the same thing and like it or dislike it. And sometimes people can like the same thing for different reasons. So then it's sort of a broad category of things that have, you know, that's, that is open. So that allows for many different readings 
like specific forms of comedies, or this example of Yiskefet that I give, which already is very dated, but was very interesting in the sense that it was made as elitist comedy and then was liked by everybody to the dismay and horror, actually, of the people who make this comedy. Mm. So they were really, because they were sort of trying to be edgy and interesting, so they tried everything in their power to get rid of all these white audiences because it was bad for their symbolic capital. Two, Two forms of comedy that are that were at the time and still are seen as, you know, more complex, more highbrow. And they actually actively exclude people in the sense that the people that I talked to with less cultural capital, less education, were really puzzled by this. So they they watched it and nothing happened. So there was no hegemonic reading, not in the sense that they went along. There was also no negotiated reading in the sense that they took their own interest there were also no oppositional reading in the sense that they took it but they just indifference they were, they were puzzled they were like well, this is funny why would you watch it <laughs> why, what's this so i so they felt they felt really excluded and i think this is what sort of highbrow pop culture can do they can give you this sense of exclusion mm. uh and that's what i call despondent reading yeah very very interesting intervention so um in that sense, it's useful also, especially in this day and age in which many, uh, very many people like the same kind of pop culture and, and really helps us explain how, for instance, even though uh, Marvel films might be very popular among very among a very wide audience, how still they have, um, this can still be classed in a way, even though everyone consumes it. Yeah, so with, and it's, it's, for instance, very clear with all sorts of pop music. Yeah, yeah with pop music. Pop yeah. music. It's really clear that the same thing, like Beyonce same. can be liked by, you know, academic intellectuals to see the very Beyonce interesting Lisa. political, yeah. yeah, So, but and also by you know, teenage girls, which is, are often sort of represented as the most declassed groups, and they also like it, but for different reading reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kendrick Lamar too. Like, this is really clear yeah. kind of... Uh, how this works so it's very useful in that sense and also it helps us it's useful for us today because it helps us to link the different kinds of reading the different readings that we had for today ties them together and also gives a very clear empirical view of how this works it's very much more an empirical piece with a very important theoretical contribution too we're almost nearing the end so we turn to the main question why and how does culture shape and reproduce inequality um So we always ask two questions. So one is, where do we go from here? So Mm. this is a question that we always ask in the podcast. But uh, in this case, I mean, it's clear that, so we discussed some foundational texts that mark the beginning of a field of study. So we have already gone from here quite far, which is actually the remainder of this podcast. So from here, we, we go through the insight that culture shapes and reproduces inequalities and that it's actually, apart from real economic inequalities, that culture is actually very central. So we're looking particularly at class, but it has been expanded also to other dimensions of inequality, race, ethnicity, gender, age or nationality. Uh, And then the remaining of the remainder of this podcast actually shows how this has sparked not only new questions, but also an entire new field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have gone from here. Um, and that also goes, I think, for the so what question yeah. uh, that we also answer at the 
uh, that we also try to answer at the end of every podcast discussion. In this case, I think the so what question um, is the question, why is this important? So Luke, I'm not sure how you would answer this. I think this is really important because it really uh, demonstrates um, and shows us that even though we live in a society that's very much ingrained with a sort of meritocratic ideology in which we are all equal, more or less, and it's just like where you end up in society depends on how hard you work and you get what you deserve in that sense. I think these readings all show that that culture plays a large part in this and how it works and, and that maybe we are not so equal and that all kinds of exclusion and inequality processes work on the background and that are much less uh, visible or explicit than the economic inequalities that we usually focus on uh, in these kinds of discussions on inequality. So to me, this is why we should care and why it's important and also demonstrates how inequalities are in these very different kind of small things, TV, sailing, winter sports, social media, comedy, all these places, inequality, culture, uh, um, is manifesting itself in a very subtle way. And I think this is why this is important. Yes, so I agree. So I also want to stress that around the world, since these texts have been uh, written, social inequalities are actually on the rise. So as a result, they're also more happily debated and contested now than they were, for instance, 20 years ago when I was writing my article. Uh, so scholars, policymakers, activists, and wider publics have only tried to grasp how these inequalities emerge but they've also tried to reduce them, to fight them, and to limit their harmful consequences. And I think what this, not only these readings, but these, what this field shows is that one important reason why inequalities are so tenacious is that they're rooted in culture. So they're deeply ingrained habits and standards that we're only partly aware of, but that strongly influence our daily behavior, our judgments of people, places, things, and activities. So culture is important, because we think it doesn't matter and because it's frivolous. If this is not a pitch to listen to the rest of the episodes, and I don't know what is. So this was the first episode, or actually the retake of the first episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast, in which we discuss how culture shapes and reproduces social inequalities. Uh, we looked at foundational texts and ideas, and had an attempt by Gizinde to integrate foundational approaches in an empirical study. In the next episodes, we will zoom in on case studies in specific fields, but the names that we heard today or that we read today of Bourdieu, Hall, Lamont, and even Giesel in the Kuipers will, of course, return many, many times. Um, so we always end with the same question. What can't you let go of this week? I think the main takeaway uh, after sort of redoing this first episode is that really with these questions, we find ourselves at the heart of sociology uh, in the sense that all societies have inequalities and these inequalities are not natural. They're not result of capacities that we are born with or not. They're always created by humans and then become real and naturalized through culture. So it's things that we have learned as part of a specific, as a member of a society. Uh, and what happens is actually that they feel real and natural to us and we use them to judge people, but it's still uh, human-made. 
yeah, for me, what I can't let go of is uh, that there's actually room for resistance. So that's sort of like optimistic, uh, uh, an optimistic note to end. So you can resist, you can change this. And because it's human ma- man-made, you can all, we can always always also change this. So it's not all doom and gloom as maybe uh, the first reading of Bourdieu might have it. So that is my very optimistic take at the end of this podcast. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this podcast, the Culture and Inequality podcast, the retake of the first episode where I was talking with Luc Bros, a PhD student in cultural and political sociology at KU Leuven. Uh, my name is Gieselin Kuipers, uh, and I hope you will have enjoyed this and you will listen to all the other Culture and Inequality podcasts that we have made and will still make. Thank you. Thank you so much. We want to thank the Center for Sociological Research of KU Leuven and the European Center for the Study of Culture and Inequality, in particular Dieter van der Broek, for their support. Thanks also to Timothy Doubt, sociologist, composer, photographer for the theme music, Light Trail, and for the photograph that became our logo. Thanks to Luc Brons for editing this and all the other episodes. And thanks to several generations of students for their questions, input, and feedback and enthusiasm. 